Okay, good morning everybody. How is everyone's week? Good? So let's start off with a word of prayer, huh? Father, uh, we just want to thank you so much for this morning, Lord, and that we get to come together and study your word again. Uh, God, we praise you for this time and just ask that you would give us wisdom and insight and understanding in your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Yeah, well, we'll have to compete with outside for a little bit, but no worries. Anyways, so the topic of today's class that we're going to be going over is how can we know that the actual Bible or the New Testament is reliable? Have you guys ever had that objection yet? In, yep. Usually the folks will give like the, uh, the game of telephone example, if you remember that. So, but before we get started on that, I kind of want to give you an overview about the next eight weeks, what we're going to be covering. So you can, if you have anyone that you want to invite, you can do that. Or if you want to skip one because you think it'll be boring, you can do that too. So next week's on our Does God Exist series, we're going to be dealing from the argument from desire, right? What was made within us and can we know that God exists by looking within? After that, it's the problem of evil, everyone's favorite topic. Can you believe in a God when there's so much evil, pain, and suffering in the world? The week after, who is the real Jesus? Did the early church create Jesus or did Jesus create the early church? Next week, is Christ the only way? There are so many religions. How can you be sure of which one is right? Next, argument from prophecy. Were the details of Christ's life foretold in the Old Testament? After that, understanding atheism is belief in God, quote, just a crutch. After that, the case for resurrection. Can you prove that Christ was raised from the dead? And then the last one, well, not last one, but apologetics and the ascension. The where, who, and what of apologetics. So that should take us to pretty much the end of the year. And we may or may not, during Christmas time, give an apologetic of the evidence of the birth of Christ. But that's kind of the plan for about at least the next eight weeks, okay? Okay, so today, dealing with the authority of Scripture, and can we absolutely know that the Bible is indeed the Word of God, the absolute truthful Word of God? Um, only one of us has had that objection yet. When you're talking to somebody, how do you know that the Bible isn't um, been... Yep, Lucy, you have? Okay. How do you know that the Bible hasn't been mistranslated or copied wrong or delivered? I mean, how can you trust a book that's over 2,000 years old. Well, we're going to give a couple different um, arguments for that. First, first we're going to do with the philosophy of it, then we'll do the actual scientific evidence of it. And that science, if you guys want to look it up on your own, is called textual criticism. And it deals with the historicity and the proof that this is indeed the actual word of God. So a case for the authority of scripture. If you're making your case on the philosophical part, it goes like this. Your first tenet is, the Bible is at least a generally reliable historical document. Jesus is the messenger sent from God. Jesus teaches that the Bible is an absolutely trustworthy historical document. And in that, when you look at the writings or in the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, there are about 200 different passages in the Gospels that deal with Jesus' view of the historical reliability of the Old Testament, which means you can't help but believe that Jesus held the actual authenticity and the reliability of the Old Testament in a very, very high regard. He quoted it over 200 times to emphasize his own point of what he was trying to make. So now all these arguments fleshed out, 
don't lead you to an absolute 100% certainty that this is indeed the actual word of God. It'll get you pretty close to there. Anyone want to guess what the remaining portion is after looking at all these other arguments? It's the Holy Spirit. I mean, he's the only one that can illuminate us, as we know. Um, the natural man cannot understand the things of God, right? Nor does he. So, in dealing with our unsaved friends and family, when we're having these conversations, and you're presenting all these different arguments, don't expect them to be like, okay, I see it, you know, absolutely. Unless God regenerates their heart at that point, then <laughs> praise God, that's going to be amazing. But these arguments in of themselves don't give you 100% certainty, okay? So, first let me point out one major, major tenet. Christianity is based on history. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul Johnson once said, Christianity, like Judaism, from which it sprang, is a historical religion, or it is nothing. It does not deal in myths and metaphors and symbols or in states of beings and cycles. It deals in facts. So when you take a look at, say, Buddhism or Taoism, it doesn't deal in actual historical events. Christianity deals in a very, very unique historical events. The birth, or a couple of events, the birth, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Very, very specific events in history. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if these events that I've just mentioned are true, then Christianity is of infinite importance. If they're not true, it's of no importance except as a cultural artifact. The one thing it cannot be is of moderate importance. That's why the radical claims of Christianity have often been made because it's either true because it happened or it's not true. That's at the very center of faith in Christ. So when it comes to um, actually explaining the historical reliability of the Gospels, what we end up getting into is the dates of which things happen, that they have actually occurred. Now, how many of you have actually read C.S. Lewis's stuff, say, Mere Christianity? Lucy, yeah? Tim? Okay. I love um, how C.S. Lewis ends up putting this, because he used an apologetic... Uh, you, you have to remember C.S. Lewis's mind. He was philosophically minded, right? He didn't really deal on scientific facts, so we'll deal with the philosophy first. But how he put it makes a lot of sense. He said, when you take a look at the person of Christ, very, very little critics will um, deny that the person of Christ existed. He said, and if they do deny the person of Christ existed, there's no basis of that denial in, in history. Because the Gospels and the Bible is not the only mention of the person of Christ. We have lots of extra-biblical references, historical documents, that mention the uh, birth of Christ, uh, it mentions his ministry, it also men mentions his resurrection, okay? Now, and uh, let me get the quote right from C.S. Lewis because I, I absolutely love it. He's talking about how do we know that Christ was who he says he was. So if you take Muslims, for example, they say Christ was a prophet of God, that he was a good messenger sent from God. Okay, well, let's unflesh that a, a little bit further. So if he's a good messenger sent from God, I mean, like in Luke, you know, where he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? Well, there's a couple of assumptions in there. Number one, he's assuming that Jesus is good, and he's assuming that because he is good, he's going to have eternal life. So he says, you're good, you're going to have eternal life. How can I be like you, also be good and inherit eternal life? Well, 
Jesus himself claimed that he was indeed the Son of God, right? There's many, many claims in Scripture where Jesus claims that he is the Son of God. So if you take a look at the argument that Jesus is who he says he was, absolutely. Now, if you want to deny that Jesus is the Son of God, so you'd either have to say that Jesus wasn't good, which almost every religion says that he was a good or a prophet of God, okay? Or you would have to say, as C.S. Lewis puts it, he is absolutely insane to the level of a man that claims that he is a deviled egg. So you have those two options in here, right? So there have been claims that the Gospels were invented by the early church. So we're going to deal with this in a few arguments that are not circular. So the issue is this. Was the Jesus of the Gospels real, or was he actually created by the writers? Have you guys heard that one yet? That the early church fathers were the ones that created Jesus? Yeah? Here's the problem with him being created by the writers. First of all, inventing the character of Jesus itself would be something of a miracle. Who would have invented him? Fishermen from Galilee? That's not going to work, right? You, you take a look at the actual person of Christ, and that's why I love delving into Scripture, because the things in Scripture, there's so much stuff in Scripture that would prove that if you're trying to, to fabricate this religion, you're not going to include all this stuff in there, the, the bad stuff, right? Like Jesus being in the direct lineage from three different prostitutes, as we've just been over in, at the beginning of Matthew. Why would you include that? That doesn't, that doesn't fit at all. Um, John Stuart Mill, who was an actual atheist, he put it this way, an atheist. It's of no use to say that Christ, as exhibited in the Gospels, is not historical. And we know not how much of what is admirable was superadded by the tradition of his followers. So who among the disciples or among their proselytes was capable of inventing the sayings of Jesus? Or of imagining the life and character revealed in the Gospels? Certainly not the fishermen of Galilee. An atheist said that that this must be an absolute historical figure. Okay, so we've established that Christ is a historical figure. Now, how can we trust that the Christ taught in this, the scriptures, is the actual one that was from the beginning? How do we know that this is an accurate transmission handed down to us? Well, again, getting on to, to the uh, philosophy of it, when you think about the apostles, the apostles were executed for their faith. Now, a lot of it is church history, and as we know, we may or may not be able to tr trust church history, but as far as how they were executed, you know, Peter being uh, executed upside down, um, Paul stoned to death, you, you know, we, we can go on and on about how the apostles uh, were murdered. But the point is this, do you guys know of anyone that would be willing to die for a lie? That you know to be a lie? No, not at all. So the most recent example, well, one of the most recent I can uh, think of, some of us here are mature enough to remember Watergate, right? So what happened during Watergate? So there was a period of two weeks of basically obstruction of justice. They knew of a crime being committed, but they didn't go to the authorities. Very soon, John Dean was the first one that got immunity from prosecution to speak to Congress. Then everybody was just clamoring all over themselves of that entire group uh, to try and get immunity as well. And this is just under the threat of a very small prison term. I think Chuck Colson 
um, got under a year. It's like nine months or something is what he ended up serving. So you see, there's no hint of anywhere in history or in scriptures of the disciples cracking under actual penalty of death for their faith. When the Watergate conspirators, it just took two weeks. Two weeks and the threat of nine months or so, or maybe a gross misdemeanor, whatever that they were going to hand out to these guys. The question of authenticity of the scriptures isn't really a religious concern at all. It's actually an academic one. So it can be answered in an academic way totally unrelated to spiritual convictions. And I like this because when we're dealing with those folks that we're having those conversations with, um, I think it's prudent to avoid the, the spiritual conversations because at least in my own conversion, right, before I became a Christian, you guys have heard my testimony a lot, um, when I was having the questions and I would go to Christians about those questions, I would get the same just dumb answers. You know, you have to have faith or just pray about it. I'm like, okay, great. So I have to turn off my brain in order to believe in your Jesus. Like, that's not going to work for me, okay? So a simple appeal to facts. So an apologetic that I call just the facts. A lot of you guys remember Matlock, right? So the objection at first glance is compelling. And it's that telephone argument. I used to use it too when I was an atheist. The argument goes like this. If you're sitting in a circle and you play the game of telephone, you know, one person whispers something into another person's ear, a story or whatever, and the next one goes on, goes on, right? And then by the time it gets back to the original person, even if it's like six or seven people in the circle, I mean, it is so convoluted that you can't even make out what the original message was. And that's their argument. So how do we know based on that that example that that's not what happened here with the scriptures. Well, we try to conceptualize how to reconstruct an original after 2,000 years of copying, translating, copying some more. The task actually appears impossible. The skepticism, though, is based on two misconceptions about the transmission of ancient documents like the New Testament. So well, let me pause there. When you guys are having those conversations with folks, you'll understand if you begin to just step back and take a look at where their arguments are coming from, you're going to understand that their ideas or their objections are actually founded in misconceptions to begin with. Does that make sense? So when I'm saying, um, let's give examples of misconceptions. Here's a misconception. Uh, there's a lot of evil in the world, so therefore God doesn't exist. Well, that doesn't fit at all, right? It, it doesn't conclude that there's a lot of evil, so God mustn't exist. As you remember, was it last week or the week before, we gave the car analogy, right? If the car, you know, brakes fail, and I end up killing an entire van full of uh, a mom and her kids, does it mean that nobody designed the car? No, that, that, that's a complete misconception, and it's a jump in the argument that doesn't fit. So the first assumption is that the transmission is more or less linear, like that game of telephone, okay? Uh, one person communicating to a second, who communicates to a third, etc. So in a linear paradigm, which is all in just one flat line, people are left with one message in many generations between it and the original. Second, the telephone game example depends on oral transmission, which is more easily distorted and misconstrued than something written. Now, the scriptures 
were not transmitted via oral transmission. How careful were they copied? What were the great lengths that were taken? I'll give one example. Um, you guys know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? When that was discovered? Basically, in the caves of Qumran uh, in the 40s, early 40s, a young shepherd boy was playing through a stone into one of the caves and heard a shatter in there. He went in to investigate, and there were all these jars filled with these manuscripts. Now, before then, in Hebrew, you didn't really have punctuation, or at least we didn't have examples of punctuation, commas, things like that, just kind of run on together, and you'd have to see where the natural line break was. The Masoretes, which were a sect of Jews, Jewish scribes that lived in this area of Qumran, were so unbelievably diligent in their precision, this is how they would translate or uh, copy, not translate, but copy the scriptures. So they'd be writing and copying the scriptures as they would come to any of the names of God. They would take the pen that they had, throw that one out, grab a brand new virgin pen as it were, write the name of God, throw that one out, and then continue with the next one. Every single time. Can you think of how many times you see a version of the name of God in scripture? It's a lot of pins, right? But these guys were absolutely that fanatical about their trans, or transmission and copying of the Gospels. So neither assumption applies to the written text of the New Testament. First, the transmission wasn't linear at all, but geometric. So what do I mean? One letter birthed five copies, which became 25, which became 200, and so on. Secondly, the transmission in question was done in writing, and written manuscripts can be tested in a way that oral transmission can't be. What do I mean? Okay, let's do a hypothetical. Now, if you guys attended the um, apologetics seminar with Alan from Stand to Reason, he gave this example, and I'm going to steal it. It's called Aunt Sally's Letter. Let's reconstruct Aunt Sally's letter. Let me illustrate how a test of the transmission can be made of scripture. And it's going to help you see how scholars can confidently reconstruct the text from existing manuscript copies, even though the actual physical copies, the original ones themselves, have differences or are much younger than the autograph of the original. So pretend you're out Aunt Sally. She has a dream, which she learns the recipe for an elixir that would continuously maintain her youth. She's discovered it, the fountain of youth. When she wakes up, she scribbles the directions on a scrap of paper, then runs to the kitchen, makes up her first glass, and in a few days, her appearance is absolutely transformed. Aunt Sally looks 40 years younger. Sally's a picture of radiant youth because of her daily dose of what becomes known as Aunt Sally's secret sauce. Sally is so excited, she sends handwritten instructions to her three bridge partners. Aunt Sally doesn't believe in photocopiers or JPEGs or anything like that. Giving detailed instructions on how to make her secret sauce. They, in turn, make copies which they send to 10 of their own friends. All's going well until one day, Aunt Sally's pet schnauzer eats the original copy of the recipe. Ruh-roh. She's beside herself. In a panic, she contacts her three friends who have also mysteriously suffered similar mishaps. Their copies are gone too, so the alarm goes out to all the friends in an attempt to recover the original wording. So they finally round up all the surviving handwritten copies. 26 of them in all. When they spread them out on the kitchen table, they immediately notice some differences. 23 of the copies are exactly the same. One has a misspelled word, though. One has two phrases inverted, mixed and chop instead of chopped and mix. And one includes an ingredient that none of the other copies has on the list. 
So here's the critical question. What do you think? Can Aunt Sally accurately reconstruct her original recipe based on this? Of course she can. The misspelled words can easily be corrected. The single inverted phrase can be repaired. And the extra ingredient, because it's only one copy, can probably be ignored, right? Even with more numerous or more diverse variations, the original can still be reconstructed with a very high level of confidence given in the right textual evidence. The misspellings would be obvious errors. The inversions would stand out, be easily be restored, and the conclusion drawn that's more plausible that one word or a sentence is accidentally added to a single copy than omitted from the rest of them. So this, in a simplified form, is how the science of what's called textual criticism works. And that's trying to reconstruct the historicity of the New Testament or of any of the scriptures. Textual critics are academics who reconstruct a missing original from existing manuscripts that are generations removed from the original. According to the New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce, quote, its object is to determine as exactly as possible from the available evidence the original words of the documents in question. So the science of textual criticism is used to test not just scripture, it's actually all documents of antiquity, including historical and literary writings. It's not a theological enterprise based on haphazard hopes and guesses. It's actually a linguistic exercise that follows a set of established rules. Textual criticism allows an alert critic to determine the extent of a possible corruption of any and all uh, literary works. So next question is, how does this apply to extra biblical and how we use this and what's the nearest relation between the two? So the ability of any scholar to do effective textual criticism depends on uh, two factors. First, how many existing copies do we have to compare it to? And are there two copies, 10, 100? The more copies there are, of course, the easier it is to make meaningful comparisons. Second, how close in time are the oldest existing documents to the original? That's kind of an important fact, don't you think? From when the author first penned that document and then we discover a historical reproduction of it, what's, what's that time frame between the two? If the numbers are few and the time gap is wide, well, it's a lot harder uh, to reconstruct with confidence. However, if there is a ton of copies and the oldest existing copies are reasonably close to the original, then the textual critic can be more confident that they've pinpointed the exact wording of that paragraph or sentence or passage. To get an idea of the significance of New Testament, we're just dealing with New Testament here, uh, manuscript evidence, I want you to note for a moment the record for non-biblical texts. I'm going to show you those. So these are secular texts from antiquity that we teach today in our school system, both high school and college, that have been reconstructed with a very, according to the textual critics, a very high degree of certainty based on the available textual evidence. The importance first century document called the Jewish War by Jewish aristocrat and historian Josephus. Do you know how many copies of that one that we have, ancient manuscripts? Nine. We have nine of that. And I own that book in my library. So dating from the fifth century, that's 400 years after when Josephus first penned his uh, Jewish War. Tacitus, Annals of Imperial Rome, is one of the chief historical sources for the Roman world of the New Testament times. Yet surprisingly, 
It survives in partial form in only two manuscripts dating from the Middle Ages, 600 years after Tacitus penned those documents. Theoclides' history survives in eight copies and seven copies of Plato, all dated over a thousand years from the original. How many times have we, or those of us that have been in college, you've read Plato, you've read Aristarchus, that the, you're like, you're confident that these are the original writings of Plato, and it was a thousand years after he penned it. Homer's Iliad, which is the most impressive ancient historical document that we have, most impressive manuscript evidence of any secular work, it has 647 copies. How long after? It's almost 2,000 years after Homer wrote it, before we even get to copy number one, and we only have 647 of them. So F.S. Bruce's comments put the discussion in perspective. He says, quote, no classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodias or Theoclides is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their works, which are of any use to us, are over 1,300 years later than the originals. They won't doubt that. That's not an issue with the modern um, textual critics when they're dealing with non-biblical resources. For most documents of antiquity, only a handful of manuscripts exist, some facing a time gap of between 800 to 2,000 years or more. Yet scholars are very, very confident of reconstructing the originals with some sufficient degree of accuracy. In fact, virtually all of our knowledge of ancient history depends on documents like these. Now let's take a look at the biblical manuscript evidence. By comparison with secular texts, the manuscript evidence for the New Testament is absolutely stunning. Now remember, I said the closest one is Homer's Iliad with 647 copies. The most recent count shows 5,366 separate Greek manuscripts represented by early fragments, unisil codes, which is manuscripts in capital Greek letters bound together in a book form, and minuscule, small Greek letters in cursive style. Among the nearly 3,000 miniscule fragments are 34 complete New Testaments dating from the 9th to the 15th centuries. Unisil manuscripts, remember those are the capital Greek letters, provide virtually complete codices, multiple books of the New Testament bound together into one volume back to the 4th century, though some are a bit younger. Here's one, Codex Sinaiticus. It was purchased by the British government from the Soviet government at Christmas in 1933 for 100,000 pounds, and is dated in the year AD 340. It's very close, right? When was John exiled to Patmos? Around 90 AD. The nearly complete Codex Vaticanus is the oldest unisil dated between 325 and 350 AD. Codex Alexandrius contains the whole Old Testament and is nearly complete New Testament and dates from the 4th century to early 5th century. So, uh, next time I'll have slides because um, I want you to see the pictures because they're really, really cool. The most fascinating evidence comes from the fragments as opposed to the actual um, entire books, right? The Chester Beatty papyri contains most of the New Testament and is dated between the mid-3rd century. The Bodmer papyri second collection whose discovery was announced in 1956, includes the first 14 chapters of the Gospel of John and much of the last seven chapters, and it dates from 8200 and earlier. The most amazing find of all, however, is a small portion of John, chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, 
and it was discovered in Egypt, known as the John Rylands Papyri. Barely three inches square. Have you guys seen this? It kind of looks like a triangle and the edges are jagged. You haven't seen this one yet? Okay. Barely three inches square represents the earliest known copy of any part of the New Testament. The papyri is dated on paleographical grounds at around 8117 to 138. Very, very recent after John. Though it may have even been earlier, showing that the Gospel of John was circulated as far away as Egypt within 30 years of it being written. That's really cool. So keep in mind that most of the papyri are fragments like that. Only about 50 full manuscripts contain the entire New Testament, though most of the other manuscripts contain the four Gospels. So even so, the manuscript textual evidence is exceedingly rich, especially when compared to other works of antiquity. It far surpasses everything that we hold to be absolute um, reliable transmission of the, the documents without question. But why, when it comes to the New Testament, when we have almost four times the evidence, now we start to question it? How do we know it's reliable? Yes? They're partials as well. Okay. Yep. So some of the ancient versions. So two other cross checks on the accuracy of the manuscripts remain. So ancient versions and citations by the early church fathers, fathers, excuse me, known as patristic quotations. The early church fathers quoted in their writings the Old and the New Testaments, right? Early in the history of the church, Greek documents, including the scriptures, were translated into Latin. By the 3rd and 4th centuries, the New Testament was translated into Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, etc. So these texts help missionaries reach new cultures in their own language. Same thing we do today. And translations of the Greek manuscripts called versions help modern-day textual critics answer questions about the underlying Greek manuscripts. So in addition, these extra-biblical resources, characteristically, catechisms, lectionaries, quotes from church fathers, um, commentaries from early church fathers that record the scriptures. Paul Barnett says the scriptures gave rise to an immense output of early Christian literature, which quoted them at length and, in effect, preserved them. Based on the quotations of the early church fathers, we can recreate the entire Bible just on their quotations alone. And that's within the third century. It's 300 years after. Metzger notes the amazing fact that, quote, if all other sources of our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, the patristic quotations would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction practically of the entire New Testament. So, what can we conclude from this evidence? New Testament specialist Daniel Wallace notes that there are about 300,000 individual variations of text of the New Testament. And that's an argument that you guys will hear pretty common. The variations in the New Testament. There's over 300,000 variations of the New Testament. Do you know what the variations are? It's, in Greek, it's called a noun, N-U-N. And it's where the letter N is positioned in, in, uh, in an article. Okay? So we can say an apple or a apple. Depends on where the N lies. That accounts for about 80% of those 300,000 variations. Does that matter? No. Also, it'll have maybe a definite article, 
or an indefinite article, such as Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ. Does that matter? Not really. That's another about 25% of the variations. And then 1% of them are maybe misspellings. There's actually about 400 words in the New Testament, the entire New Testament, that we're not sure of where they would fit in in the originals. We can't really recreate them, but they have no bearing on any theology or doctrine of the New Testament. And it's only 400 words, folks, out of hundreds of thousands. So, and that number is very, very misleading, that 300,000 number. And you're going to hear that, especially if um, your kids are in university. The professors love to spout this one. There's over 300,000 different variations in the New Testament. Spelling errors, inverted phrases, side-by-side uh, -side comparison between the two main text families, which is the majority text, which is the most, right, the most texts we have. Um, and shows agreement a full 98% of the time with what we have right now. Of the remaining differences, like I said, virtually all yield to vigorous textual criticism. This means that the New Testament is 99.5% textually pure. That's impressive that we can recreate with extreme certainty. And we can't recreate that with Homer's Iliad. We can't recreate it with Plato or Socrates, yet we trust those unequivocally to be taught to us in schools with no question. Why do you think that is? The nature of the subject, perhaps? They don't have the same meaning. No. They don't. Not at all. They don't ask for anything. No. In return. No, as in uh, dedication to Christ. Right. In the entire text of 20,000 lines, only about 40 lines are in doubt, like I said, about 400 words, and none of them affects any significant doctrine. So there's a Greek scholar, you guys may have heard um, Pastor Ben uh, quote him, D.A. Carson. Um, he's one of the greatest Greek scholars of, of the original Koine Greek, and he sums it up this way. Quote, the purity of the text is of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. So the issue is no longer contested by non-Christian scholars, and for good reason, Simply put, if we reject the authenticity of the New Testament on textual grounds, we'd have to reject every ancient work of antiquity and declare null and void every piece of historical information from written sources prior to the beginning of the second millennium AD. That's a lot of writings that, excuse me, we'd completely have to throw out just because we don't have, quote, the originals. So has the New Testament been altered? Well, critical academic analysis says, no, it hasn't. It absolutely hasn't. Now, I know this is a ton of information, and, but I wanted to give kind of the 60,000-foot overview because in textual criticism, we can be here for weeks. Literally, I had an entire 16-week course on this in college a whole semester, okay, on just textual criticism alone. But do you guys have any questions? Does this stuff make sense about how reliable the New Testament is and how reliable the scriptures are versus what we're, we're using for other historical documents like the Iliad and Plato, Socrates, all that stuff. It, it comes down to the fact, you know, hey, we have texts about the life and times of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. How do we know? Do we have the originals? We don't. 
We don't. Not describing the life. We have one original document, well, two, actually, held in the archives. That's the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Okay? So here's the thing. When we were, before the discovery, discovery of the um, Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, our nearest uh, timeline was about a thousand years from the original. The Dead Sea Scrolls put us within a hundred years or so of when the originals were actually written. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal discovery. But that's not the coolest part. The coolest part is we said, okay, let's see how good we really were in, in our transmission of this. And when we compared our modern versions of scripture compared to the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's where it was 99.5% the same. Within a hundred years of the originals, how is that possible? Well, and I leave that up to the Holy Spirit, right? For the transmission of the scriptures. That this is indeed the actual word of God. Um, if you guys want to, we can get into what's the inerrancy of scripture. I think we determined that this has been transmitted to us as from the originals. Okay, then how do we know that what is taught in them hasn't been perverted by man. Does that make sense? That, have you guys had that argument yet? That fallible men wrote the scriptures. <laughs> I, I used to use it, guys. <laughs> okay, so it was my argument too. But fallible men wrote the scriptures. It's not like God physically penned, like on the Ten Commandments, took his finger and wrote, you know, the gospel according to John. That didn't happen. Not quite, but... Later on, again, I'll leave it up to you guys. If you want to delve into that, we can delve into the inerrancy of Scripture, which is a huge problem um, in our church and our universities today. It really is, because a lot of churches, especially here in the West, teach that some of the Bible may be inerrant, may be the Word of God. Some of the Bible can be used for uh, reproof and edification of how you should live your life. Some of the Bible is the actual Word of God and the commands of Christ. And I ran into that in seminary. And I didn't go to a liberal seminary, guys. I went to a very conservative one. And I had a hard time finding professors that believed that the scripture was the absolute inerrant word of the living God. Isn't that nuts? It really is, right? What's that? I know. I know, I wonder how we end up getting there. To, to where we're thinking that this isn't the actual words of God, it's been perverted by man, and maybe some of it, if we agree with it, then we can use that. I mean, do we not see that in our churches today, right now? I mean, how many compromises do we use? We need that emphasis. What's that? We need that emphasis. Yeah, I know. Uh, we do need the emphasis on that the scriptures are the absolute inerrant word of God. And if you can't trust that, if you can't trust it from the very beginning, right? My favorite verse in all of Scripture is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can't trust that that, from the beginning, is the actual word of God, what's the point? What do you say for the books that have been left out? I'm glad you asked. So those that are listening online, you may not have heard my bride. She was asking, what do you say about the books that have been left out? The Apocrypha, Right like 1st uh, and 2nd Maccabees, Bale of the Dragon, um, the Gospel of Thomas, for example. 
And they're really cool. If you guys haven't had a chance to read them, I think you should. They're, they're super neat books. So um, in the early 1500s, we, meaning church fathers, all got together in a council and we decided what was going to be included in the actual canon of scripture, right? What is the inspired word of God? And we had some tests to determine what that was. The test was either it had to have been penned by a known author, which was a known disciple or a known prophet, or maybe by a scribe of that known author. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It could not disagree with any of the known portions of scripture in dates or theology. Um, and uh, we would get into the textual criticism part, we'd have to get it as close to the original as possible and then in the number of manuscripts as possible. So when we take a look at some of those books, let's take like the Gospel of Thomas. I love the Gospel of Thomas. It's, it's like I said, it's really, really cool. It's very, very poetic. There's some beautiful stuff in there. One of my favorite passages in the Gospel of Thomas is Christ is speaking and he says, uh, lift a rock and you will find me. Split a piece of wood and I am there. It, it's, it's awesome, right? Just to get that idea of Christ's um, omnipresence everywhere. However, there's another description in the Gospel of Thomas, which is the very specific reason why I was kicked out of the canon of Scripture. In this story, Jesus was about 10 or 11. He's playing down by the river um, on the Sabbath, and he's making little clay birds, right, playing. And here comes a rabbi walking. Why the rabbi's walking on the Sabbath, I don't know. <laughs> but here comes a rabbi walking next to him. Jesus, for fear that he was going to get caught in trouble for, quote, working or doing anything on the Sabbath, claps his hands, the birds become actual doves, and fly away. Now, does that match the character of Christ? That he's going to use his authority as God to merely get out of trouble and create a magic trick? No. So that's why the Gospel of Thomas was thrown out. Um, Baal and the Dragon. Okay, Very, very cool book on that one. The same ideas. That one was thrown out for the reason... We don't know who the author is. Well, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is either. Right. But it, we don't know, that for those listening online, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is either. But whoever the author of Hebrews is, theologically, it 100% supports the rest of Scripture. It doesn't disagree in any point. Well, and I think I had read, too, that when that decision was being made about what was going to be included, there were a lot of books that just because of, over time, had already been... Like included, you know, right? Like it right. Kind of like it was already kind of commonly accepted. Right. There were a few that were kind of like said on the, the debate, you know, yeah. right? But a lot of them was it was like historically for hundreds of years it's already been like the gospels and all these things. Were, I mean, so it wasn't like they were brand new pulling all these random works together, right? And then deciding it was like based on historical presence of a lot of those very valid texts. Like probably was where Hebrews kind of came into yeah. play. Well, and, you, and when you take a look, especially at the Old Testament, take a look at where or the culture in which it came from, right? If any of you have met a Hasidic or an Orthodox Jew, these people are kind of obsessed with history and historical accuracy, okay? So, I mean, when we take a look at, like, the Pentateuch and then the Minor Prophets and then the Law and then the, the Major Prophets, that they know and know that they know that they know. The same reason I gave for the New Testament, because our early church fathers quote enough of the New Testament to recreate it. Their rabbis in the Talmud quote enough of the Old Testament to recreate it. So we know which or which. Yeah? So I have a question. Um, like, the Book of Enoch? Yeah. I know that's been, like, 
Uh huh. It's the same thing. It, it disagrees with some of the major prophets. Jesus quoted it because a lot of the rabbis in the Talmud quoted it, and it's a historical reference for what happened at the time. But is it an inspired work of God? Well, apparently not. Yeah, a good question, though. Uh, we, we don't necessarily know that he, they were quoting from that book either, right? Because right, they could have been quoting from the Talmud, which was uh, rabbis that quoted from that book. Yeah, that's true. Yep. So I hope this stuff makes sense. Useful, Pray prayerfully, okay. Um, and I'll... Well, how does that work into an argument? Okay. I mean, I'm not going to spew these facts because mm -hmm. I didn't retain them. <laughs> I'm his wife. I love my bride. <laughs> yeah, so how does that play out? Okay, so how does it play out in an argument for those listening at home? You're presenting the gospel. You're, <laughs> you're telling them about Christ, and their first argument is, well, how can you trust the Bible? You keep quoting the Bible. We don't know that it, where it came from. We don't have any idea that fallible men didn't just make this stuff up and write a book. Then you can say, actually, we do know where it came from. And you can spit a couple different facts. You can say, do you realize, and if it's a college education, educated person, the better, because they're going to know about Homer's Iliad or Plato or Socrates, and you're going to ask them, have you ever read the Iliad by Homer? Well, yeah, it's required reading. I know. Do you realize there's only 647 copies of the Iliad in existence? They may or may not know that. Yeah. Where are you getting at that? Do you realize that the earliest copy from the Iliad is about 1,800 years from when Homer penned the original? Really? Yeah. Do you realize the earliest copy of the Gospel of John that we have is within 30 years of when he wrote it? Do you realize we have almost 3,000 different original manuscripts of it? Do you realize we have over 30,000 different copies and languages from the same time frame of it? So your argument that how do we know you believe the Iliad to be true unequivocally and it has far weaker evidence than the New Testament to be true. And when you're saying copies, you're talking about transcribing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, because obviously there's more copies of the Iliad because it's required reading for colleges. Right, copies copy. now, right. yes. Yes. Yeah, so, but original manuscripts, yes, like the same yes. thing, like the same thing that we based the New Testament off of. We based um, what we recreated, the, the work of Homer's Iliad, off of 647 copies. The work of the New Testament we created off of about 5,400 copies. That's a significant jump. And the 5,400 copies, the earliest is within 30 years of the original of the author. The earliest of the Homer's Iliad is within 1,800 years of the original of the author. So which one are you going to trust just on a pure academic basis? Let's, let's take the content out of the books apart. Academically, which one are you logically going to trust? I'd say the New Testament. You have more and they're closer to the original. Yeah, guys. That's important too if you talk with somebody is is to is to try and get them to think as objectively and, yeah. and literally academically academically I guess as you can because that emotion is gonna override like logic. Oh, right. Because they just wanna believe what they wanna believe. Right. So right. you really gotta I, I would say it, it that would be probably the most difficult part of that conversation is steering them to stay to objective. bypass the emotional. Yeah. yeah. Right. To stay objective and 
and think about it from a reasonable standpoint. And that's an important point. Again, those listening at home, um, the comment was, it's important to get those folks to stay objective and to bypass all the emotion stuff in their arguments because all the emotion stuff, if you guys have had those conversations, those are circular, man. <laughs> they go for hours and they go nowhere. <laughs> They're so annoying. And there is a bit of an American bias, too, because I know, I know that, that at least when I was in college, I went through glasses like this, that like scholars, historians, like historical scholars uh -huh. in other countries like Italy and all those places, Greece, they take the Bible as a historic document. Like we, they're pulling all the religious stuff aside. It's like they recognize it probably for all those same manuscript yep. persons. Yep. They do. That this is an accurate representation of the historic things happening at that those times. Yep. We Americans throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think it's because places like Italy have such a richer, deeper, older history. history. Yeah, yeah. They know they can trust that. Whereas we are so young, we're like, really? How do you know that's true? Actually, we're so dumb. Right. And and it is the history and the age of the history in those other nations. Uh huh. Right. I know, which is which is amazing. And as far as the historicity of of the different nations versus us, I mean, I can go see the old North Church in Boston, right? And that's what two hundred and twenty years old, and that's the oldest building that we have in America. Now, my wife and I have been in Italy, and I've been standing in front. I've been standing in front of fountains and in front of cathedrals that were built in the year 80, 10, 25. That is old, okay? That is, is a very important part of, of that um, transmission. Um, now, back to you guys' point. I had a thought, but I lost it because I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> what was it? To stay objective. Thank you. So like, yeah, I mean, think about it objectively. Because um, it's like almost like people, you know, they, they, you have to really challenge their integrity. You know, you've got to make them realize, like, this is right. what we're really looking at here. Right. It has to be kind of, you know, the evidence does have to be overwhelming. It's got to be sharp and to the point. Yep. You know, so then, you know, it kind of hits them. And they're like, oh, man, yeah, I know, I mean, hopefully that. Yep. So I'm glad you brought up the objective point. So the, um, one of the most recent cases I have on that one was Pastor Ben and I were having lunch at um, Gigi's. It's the sushi and teriyaki joint in Centralia down by Arby's. And uh, this was years ago. This was like 10, 11 years ago. So what was on Washington's docket at that time was legalizing same-sex marriage. Okay? So we get our lunch. I'm having lunch with my pastor, guys. What do you think we're going to do before we eat? Pray. Okay? <laughs> so, so we pray before having lunch. Someone sees us praying, comes over, wants to pick a fight because of what's on the docket right now as far as same-sex marriage and legalizing it. And, you know, start going off. I, I'm, and Ben, of course, is a lot more gracious than I am <laughs> when it comes uh, to these engagements. But I, I stopped this individual right there. I said, okay, okay, I understand the arguments. Let's, let's pull out the religious stuff. Let's just be purely objective with constitutional law at this point, right? You're, you're talking about the rights of legalizing same-sex marriage and about how you are being denied rights by not having the legalization of same-sex marriage. Let's take a look. Let's be objective about the, the combination of rights. Me, as a legal American, heterosexual male, I have the legal right to marry a woman over the age of 18 whom I'm not related to, who isn't married already, and who isn't dead. 
You, as a homosexual legal citizen of the uh, country of the United States of America, have the legal right to marry a woman over the age of 18 who isn't married already, whom you're not related to, and who isn't dead. We quite literally have the exact same rights, objectively. Now, you are wanting to add a right because you're wanting to define marriage on what you define as love as. If anyone's getting shafted in this deal, it's me. Because you are adding a right that doesn't exist that I can't participate in. I should be the one complaining about this nature, don't you think? Like, you're wanting to just define love and then equal that to marriage. And that's not in the law at all. How'd that conversation go? Well, not well. It's not like they got saved at the point. But in, in pointing that out, you can appoint the objectiveness, right? Does that, does that make sense? And how we are talking about exactly the same thing, but you're wanting to make it an emotional argument based off of I want or I feel, and you're saying that it's objective or it's foundational and rights, and it's, it's not. It's absolutely not. Um, <laughs> So when you do have those conversations and you keep it objective and pointing everything out, does it usually end in, you know, someone wanting to come from Christ? No, it, it doesn't, okay? However, um, it does keep the conversation on point. And what do you do to keep off from all that, you know, emotional stuff and then the conversation going flipping everywhere? It's like what Alan taught us in the uh, apologetics conference. You ask questions. You make them prove their point. Well, that's an interesting idea. How did you come to that, right? And then you can understand why they're arguing what they're arguing. And you can continue to ask them questions, but they're loaded questions, right? So if they were talking about legalization of same-sex marriage, and you'd be like, you would ask them a loaded question, well, how is that a violation of rights? Well, because I don't get to marry whom I want to marry. Okay, well, if someone wanted to marry as a 50-year-old man, a six-year-old girl, how is that not a violation of his rights? You keep asking questions, but they're loaded questions. You get where I'm getting at on here? And then it, it finally drills down to the point. They're like, golly, this is rather an irrational point. At least it doesn't follow the, the laws of logic, hopefully. But most of the time, it ends up with the I feel statements. But like I said, think of you know, what we're fighting against here. You know, we're fighting against these people being held captive by the enemy at this point. So your best bet in these engagements, as much as I enjoy this stuff, folks, that's why I'm here up here teaching you, it's not this stuff. It's prayer. It's absolutely prayer. That's your best bet before these engagements and during these engagements. Just constantly keep praying, right? And actually, I think apologetics is for edification of the body. I do too. You know, it's not, it doesn't come out in like preaching at juvie. I mean, it does for their questions. questions like, where did different races come from? Were there dinosaurs? La, la, la. Mm -hmm. But as far as knowing this stuff, it's just for the building up of our faith. Yeah, it is. And it definitely strengthens our faith, right? Yes. Well, I think it's because so much of what we, we as in like our culture, accepts as truth, and under the guise of it being scientific or whatever, you know, like they, they but it really is all ideology, like evolution. Mm -hmm. It takes far more belief and faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe that there's a creator. Right. You can debate about who the creator was. That's a different question. 
but there's no science basis. It's, no. it's a philosophy that they preach as if it's a scientific fact. Right. Yeah, and it, a lot it of is. other things, too, and, I think, and that's hard. And I think, like you said, for our own edification, to know that it's not just, like you said earlier, like, you know, put your brain aside and just believe. It's like it's the opposite of that. We love God with our hearts, minds, and spirit. And so that everything that's scriptural truly lines up with what is true and what is truly scientific and logical. If you dig down to the basis of the actual argument versus the philosophical ideation of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, if, and if that is God's word, He's going to maintain it. He's not going to let it fall apart. No, yeah. no, okay. not at all. It, right there, you know, it's it's right there. It's in your face. It's either it's God's word or it's not. You know, I mean, it, it's all it's all there or it's not. He's going he's gonna to make sure that that communication to us is there. Or he's going to make sure that there is none. Right. Right. And that's where the enlightenment from the Holy Spirit comes from, you know, with revealing that this is indeed God's word. What I was looking for is um, a scan I took of an old newspaper. So we were out in Minnesota um, helping our daughter and son-in-law remodel their house and everything. And we ripped up the old carpet. Um, no, you can find it in the small family chat, though. I sent it there. So we're helping them rip up their, their old carpet, and we, to my daughter's delight, we found original hardwood underneath, and it's beautiful, it's awesome. Well, it will be once you sand it and, and refinish it, but it's going to be cool. It's going to be really cool. Anyways, when they laid the linoleum, they put old newspapers and then laid the linoleum on top and the carpet on top of that. So when we found the newspapers, they were from 1953, and I scanned a copy of one of the ads in the newspapers. And do you know what the title of it was? It was Trust the Science. And the ad was The Benefits of Pregnant Mothers Smoking Camel Cigarettes. <laughs> it literally said Trust the Science. In 53. Um, it, yeah, it's in our small family chat. So you'll have to... Tim's looking too. I mean... <laughs> I mean, it was, it, was, it was amazing without saying it. You guys know why I sent that to our family chat. But um, the, the point with, with all of that that we're taking a look at is what we know at one point changes throughout history. I mean, here we're telling pregnant mothers that smoking camel cigarettes is not only enjoyable, but it's great for the health of the baby and the development of the health of the baby. And figure, in 1953, these camel cigarettes were unfiltered, okay? Oh. No, no. Yep, that is, that is, here it is. Years ahead of them all, Chesterfield is best for you. Um, and it gives you, first to give you the premium quality and regular king-size cigarettes, uh, a report never before made about a cigarette, um, talking about the benefits to pregnant mothers. I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing where we come from. And that's a point, again, dealing with the um, objectivity, right? That even in science, or science so-called, the ideas are going to change. What we knew to be quote-unquote true in the past, of course, isn't true in the future. Classic example, Galileo. I mean, we believed, right, that the sun revolved around the earth until Galileo proved us different and we executed him for being a heretic. <laughs> so it changes, folks. 
And you can definitely use uh, that rationale when you're talking to somebody about, yeah, I understand your arguments for evolution, but it's going to change from what we discover. Um, let's see, I wanted also to point out our next subjects for the upcoming weeks. Uh, a couple folks just came in, like Lucy and the Cobbs. Um, so, Lucy is a cob. Oh, Lucy is a cob. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the younger cobs, <laughs> the kids. Um, so, here's the order of what's going to happen for the next couple of weeks. In our uh, next week's going to be in our Does God Exist series again. Uh, the argument from desire. So we're arguing in Romans one here. Uh, can we know that God exists by looking within? So it's the moral kind of argument. The week after, one of my favorites, the problem of evil. How can you believe in God when there's so much evil, pain, and suffering in the world? Who's the real Jesus? Did the early church create Jesus, or did Jesus create the early church? Is Christ the only way? There are so many religions. How can you say which one is right? I'm sure you guys have heard this one. Argument from prophecy, where the details of Christ's life foretold in the Old Testament. Understanding atheism, is belief in God, quote, just a crutch, as I used to say. Case for the resurrection, can you prove that Christ was raised from the dead? And then apologetics and the ascension, the where, the who, and the what of apologetics and Christ being raised from the dead. Um, if you guys want to add anything more to that, like I said, if you want to get on the inerrancy of Scripture, we can take that tangent. But that's, that's more of a theological issue than it is a you know, apologetic issue. But yeah, we can add it. Any other questions, guys? Yeah? <laughs> okay. No, it's, it's not, and I, and I like where you're getting at with that. So the comment for those listening online, you know, when we're in the universities, we hear that there's over 300,000 variations in the New Testament alone. So who, who are we, we quoting on this? Are we quoting heavy hitters like Stephen Dawkins or, uh, or, or anyone along those lines? No, they're not. They're just quoting, you know, stuff that they've heard or they may have scanned um, in any other news outlet. Um, the also log obvious logical fallacy that they're appealing to is the uh, argument from popular opinion. Yeah. Right? I figured, but mm -hmm. I just to and professors aren't exactly thrilled when you point out logical fallacies in their speeches, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there's that. Yeah. Right. You could just say name one. <laughs> right. And they probably wouldn't be able to because they don't actually do the research themselves. They don't. And I mean, like, I, I was super popular, you know, once I got saved in, in evolutionary classes. And they're talking about, you know, millions of years ago. And my first question was, um, were you there? <laughs> you know, so I wasn't a popular student either. <laughs> All right, you guys. Well, let's close up in prayer, okay? Father, uh, thank you so much, Lord, 
just for your many blessings. And thank you that you uh, loved us enough that we do have your accurate word before us that we can study and we can be uh, assured that it is 100% your word, Lord. We love you, and we just ask that as we go out throughout this week, we do have those opportunities to share your word with others. In Christ's name I pray, amen.